0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Surge. I am E. Reese, the uh, executive pastor here at The Surge. Our lead pastor, Dwayne, has been out for a couple of weeks, but he will be back with us next Sunday. We are continuing our At The Movies uh, series this morning, talking about the movie Top Gun Maverick, uh, which I really enjoyed. It was a really fun film. But in other movie news, this week, uh, something really interesting happened. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but the movie Barbie and the movie Oppenheimer are opening on the same weekend, and what a lot of people are doing is they're actually going to see these as a double feature. They're calling this Barbenheimer. So they're going to see Barbie, and then they're immediately going to see Oppenheimer, which i, I got to say, this is what the end of Western civilization looks like right here. This is, this is a clue. And, you know, as a country, can I just say, like leading into the election cycle, we're, we, as a country, we've gone to the zoo. We, I mean, we've gone to the zoo. This is like the ultimate first world weirdo thing right here. It still amuses me. I'm very, I'm very amused by this. And, and it's just the irony of these two films being so different it's, it's, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's funny. I mean, you have a movie about the idea of just because we can do something doesn't mean we should, with deep moral implications of that and the notion that people have the potential to do really terrible things to each other. Um, it's a really dark movie dealing with the aspects of humanity that perhaps should be guarded against, that we really should take seriously with conflict and fire and unintended consequences and the deep and terrifying power of the universe. And then you have this movie about nuclear weapons, which is also really interesting. <laughs> so you he you got all the things, all the things coming together in, in one. Okay, so uh, with Top Gun Maverick, we have a really interesting movie. And, and I, I got to admit, my expectations for this were pretty low, <laughs> you know, given the nature of the first one, which was really about an inch deep. Um, it was kind of fun with some Kenny Loggins, you know, Highway to the Danger Zone, and there's, you know, lots of uh, fighter jets, um, and, and, and Tom Cruise, who... I I will say I would not want to be locked in a room with Tom Cruise for any length of time, but I really like a lot of his movies. So um, it's a really interesting movie. So when I went into this, I really wasn't expecting a lot, and I got to tell you, it surprised me. There was some real depth to this movie. With the original Top Gun coming out, what, uh, four or five years ago? It's it's been a long time. You know, it's a long time to wait for a sequel. Um, And what I would expect would be, you know, some explosions, (laughs) perhaps, you know, some airplanes, a lot of bravura, uh, not much substance. But again, this one surprised me. It felt more grown up. And that's the idea that I want to land on. I think it's the key to this, this film. If the first one was more childish in some really important ways, this one took some time to grow up a little bit. It really did. Um, it, it took some time to mature. So I thought it would be an interesting line to take here to talk about the idea of maturity and wisdom in the movie and then take that idea from a biblical perspective. What does it mean to put away childish things from 1 Corinthians? And so uh, let's, let's do the first scene of this movie. And, and honestly, this is, where I, this is where I stopped eating my popcorn and took notice because this is one of the best scenes I've seen in a movie, in any movie, for a long time. Let's roll this first clip. Okay, that was a powerful sequence. And, and it, it reminded me of the movie Inside Out where the character slowly learns over time that, that part of growing up is that emotions can be more than one thing at the same time, and they can mix together. I think this is especially true in Grieving, Um, But the scene was a powerful expression of that, where the hero is remembering the loss of his friend while seeing uh, his friend's son in the room celebrating with his friends, and they're just having a good time. They're seeing great balls of fire. They're just having a a terrific time, and it overlaps with this weird double vision of his memory of his friend doing a similar thing and the loss of that, and he's seeing the celebration and the joy that they're experiencing, and and he's experiencing his own loss very deeply. Listen, there just wasn't anything of that complexity and depth in the first movie. It was profound. And it's something that we learn to do as adults. It's something that that hits us when the years gang up on us a little bit. We lose someone close to us, and then after that, something happens to remind us of that person, a parent or a spouse or someone close to us. And, and we remember them and go, oh, I should share that with. And then you go, oh, and it, it just hits you right in the bread basket. You know, it's like it, it's happy and it's sad and it's all the things at once. And you treasure the relationship that you had and you're so glad for those experiences. And yet you feel the loss of it very acutely and very deeply all at the same time. It's all, it's all mixed up. And this scene uh, just handles that topic with a lot of nuance. And I, and I think it handles it, it really well. We feel the sting of these things again. Well, full force. It's happy, it's sad, it's painful. It's all the things. So, well done, Top Gun. Um, the other thing that, that they do in this movie, um, there's, there's another clip that I want to, uh, that again, is just much more grown up than the first film, is the relationship of Pete Maverick and Iceman, who is now an admiral. So, let's roll clip two. Now, I don't mean to bag on the first movie too much, but the relationship between Maverick and Iceman in the first film was basically the two guys beating their chests and flinging poo at each other. I mean, it, was, it didn't get much much deeper than that. But here we have something else going on, something really interesting. So it turns out that Maverick is still Maverick. He hasn't quite learned when not to buzz the tower. He's still pushing the limits of boundaries of military structure. But he's had an ally in this character who's his friend who's been kind of protecting him and, and who sees his value to the overall organization, which can tend towards bureaucracy. But you have this guy who's incredibly competent, He's a risk taker, and he can build a bridge to these pilots who are incredibly high performers. So their friendship is overlaid with the darker idea of Iceman's mortality. He's succumbing to cancer, and his time is limited. But together, this entire conversation is not focused on on themselves. It's focused on helping the next generation, and how can they do that? How do they build this bridge? How do they get this done in a way that's going to be most helpful for the kids that they're, they're teaching. It's an incredible, it's an incredible scene. And, and Maverick is actually becoming wise, <laughs> you know, words I never thought I would say out loud, but it's like there's, there's a real wisdom and a real nuance to this idea of these guys growing up. They're, they're doing something else now, and they're really looking forward to fulfill their mission, but also to help the next generation. One more short clip, and then we'll, uh, we'll land the plane and make the, make the pivot. Um, so this is the team building scene on the beach. Here we go. Again, so my, my thesis here in terms of understanding the, t- the movie Top Gun Maverick, I think you have to see it kind of in almost a comparison contrast with the first movie. I think it only makes sense in that context. And In the first movie, there's a scene where Iceman and Maverick have this thing where they, they play beach volleyball, and it's really about the competition and who's the best, and you know, this and that, and, and also, you know, which one of them can emit more testosterone in a four, <laughs> in a four-minute clip. But... In this one, it's not just about the one-upsmanship of the thing. It's not about the competition. Maverick here is deliberately doing something more social with his team, not just to power down, but very deliberately and being very intentional about creating an environment of fun, of laughter, of community, and also of, of kind of a improvisational teamwork, playing offense and defense at the same time. They have to see things differently. They have to, and it's just chaos, which is what their mission is going to be like. It's going to have elements that are just going to be out of control. And so he's teaching them to trust each other in this idea of, in this environment that's actually very safe and very fun. And it's something that we forget. We forget the importance of play in basic relationships. Man, it, it, you've got to play with your friends, with your spouse. You've got to do things that, that just for the sake of having fun and having laughter, And and you can take these incredible individual performers, these these people of extraordinary competence, and and you can mix them in with even people who are there but who are still struggling to find their preparation for the mission. And in this way, he brings them all together and literally forms a team. Now, it's still a Top Gun movie. They still have some dogfighting that is perhaps less believable in a modern context. And there are key moments of heroism where the pilots are moving to save each other, even when that potentially means sacrificing themselves. And at the end of the movie, we see Maverick turn away from the idea that it's all about him, that it's all about his abilities, about his own competence. And he becomes someone who's willing to lay down his life for his friend. And his extraordinary focus and his extraordinary ability becomes something in that, that really becomes about pouring himself into the next generation. Okay, so what does this mean in the context of a community of faith? There's a really, the idea of growing up, of, of being less childish, of being more wise, of being more mature. There's this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians, everybody's heard this passage, but there's a line in this chapter that I think sometimes gets less focus. So I just want to read this to you, and uh, we'll, we'll hone in on the, the child part of this. So this is 1 Corinthians 13, here we go. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now this is a really interesting passage of Scripture. And in Matthew 18, in contrast to this, Jesus tells us that we have to come to the kingdom of heaven... As a child, we have to come like children, and this is 100% correct. We have to come as dependent. We have to come as not already knowing everything. Uh, You know, the one thing, one very fun thing, like where Athena is right now. She's got a thousand questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? Why, you know, why are horses so cute? You know, it's like it's going to be just it's going to be nonstop for the next couple of years, and she's just absorbing the universe in every way, and she knows that she doesn't know everything, but she's hungry for it, and it's just this wonderful aspect of childhood. We don't know. We know that we don't know things. And so we're really hungry. And Jesus is saying, we come to the kingdom of heaven like that, to take that attitude, to know that we don't know everything. So let's come and ask, ask these questions and find good answers. And so there, there's an idea. But it's not the end game. Being a child is a phase of development. It's not the way to be forever. God eventually wants us to grow up a little bit, right? We eventually, children are great, but they're all over the place, and children are literally designed to develop and mature and become not children at some point, right? They, they eventually grow up, and, and God wants us to grow up too. And it's the second part of growing up a little bit that, that Paul is talking to us about here in this chapter 13. So this is really interesting. I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of, uh, it's just a pet peeve of mine when people say something like, oh, well, those people, those people are, you know, they're not sophisticated, and they're very dumb, and they just, they read the Bible, they just read it literally, they just read it literally. It's like, okay, look, <laughs> there, there is literal language, and there's figurative language, and often they overlap, sometimes they're both, sometimes it's one or the other, and, and you do have to read with some amount of wisdom to, to think about which is which, okay? So, I believe when it said that Jesus went to Nazareth, I think literally he actually walked to a town called Nazareth. There was a guy named Jesus who actually existed in history, and he literally walked over to Nazareth. When he's doing a parable about the prodigal son, I don't know that there was an actual son who did these actual things, even though stories have probably been similar to that. It was a, it's a fiction, right? It's a story to help us understand something. That's figurative language. But what we have to be careful with the saying that none of it is literal. It's all just stories. It's like, nope, some of this is literal, and it, it matters. It matters that it's literal, because Jesus actually rose from the dead. It's not just a figure of speech. We have to be very careful with this. So in this, in this passage, in 1 Corinthians, I think part of what's going on is the literal aspects of love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast. When he brings in the idea of a child, now we can make a figurative application, right? These things are, are meant to be read through the lens of our experience as children. <laughs> okay, so let me, just, let me just do this as a quick meditation. I'll just, I'm, I'm going to blow through this very quickly. I'm going to talk about myself, but just go with me if you want to. If, you know, just go with me if you want to. Just, just be aware that there will be, be dragons here. Okay, so I noticed that all these things, if you take the negative of them, it's things that children don't necessarily do very well. So these are seven things from 1 Corinthians, that I was not as a child, okay? I was not very patient. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Oh my gosh, I was such an irritating child. I wanted it now. You know, microwaves really didn't come into play until I was in middle childhood. I wanted it right now. I, I did not like to wait. I hated waiting. I, I did, if I was somewhere where I didn't have some kind of activity or a book or something to do or something to read, I would literally go bananas. I would just go crazy. I was not a patient child. Often, as a child, I was not kind. I was a mean little kid, man. I was, I was sniping at people and insulting them because it was funny or I would take a shot at whatever. I was often not kind. I was very jealous. I was jealous of the older kids who could do what they wanted. I was jealous of other people who had the toy that I didn't have. I was super envious of other people as a child. As, as a kid, I was very boastful. Oh, look at me. I got the good grade or I won the race or I did this and that. Man, I would tell everybody in the world, I, it's all about me, blah, 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 blah. I was very boastful. Um, arrogant, fortunately, I'm no longer arrogant. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. So I was very arrogant as a child, and I'm still really arrogant. It's like it's one of my most irritating characteristics. And sometimes I'll say something, and Karen will just kind of, she'll just look at me, and I'll go, yeah, you're, you're right, I know, I'm sorry. Um, rude. I was a very rude little kid. I was often completely unaware of the people around me and how what I was doing made them feel. It was all about me and my little world. I was very rude. Um, I insisted on my own way like many children do all the time. I want what I want. I want it now. Let's go. I want this and I want that. It was always about my own way. Let's go to the next slide. Um, seven more things that I goofed up as a kid, okay? I was resentful. When something didn't go my way, I, really, I didn't like it. I got really angry about it. Um, I was often happy with wrongdoing. Somebody would do something that was wrong, or I thought that was really funny, or I, you know, I, I, would, kind of, I would kind of rejoice in that. I was not at all happy with the truth, especially when my parents would put the smack down on me (laughs) when I needed to be punished or disciplined for something. Even though that was true, I did not like it. Um, Did I bear all things? No, I was a whiner. (laughs) I would whine about, oh, oh, I hit my toe. Oh, it's really hot. Oh, it's really cold. Oh, it's this and that. You know, it's like I I just, I did a lot of complaining as a a kid. Did I believe all things? Um, Now, kids have a very amazing capacity to believe, but often, if something didn't happen like I wanted it to happen, I would, get, I would just shut down immediately. It's, oh, it, we're all doomed. It's just terrible. As a kid, I did not believe all things. In the same way, I didn't hope. If something happened to disappoint me or the plans didn't go as planned, I did not say, it's going to be okay. We're going to fix it. We'll be okay. It's like, nope, it's all doomed, and it would, you know, it'd be, a, it would be a fit. Um, did I endure all things as a child? No, not particularly. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I, just, I wasn't good at handling these things. Okay, now, this, this list can be a bit of a downer. And look, some of these are aspects of childhood that just kind of are what they are. They're not necessarily evil. Uh, they just kind of are what they are. Look, we start somewhere, and then we grow up a little bit, hopefully somewhere along the way. We don't, be, we don't come out perfectly virtuous out of the box, as it were, right? It takes some time. But it's interesting that all of these things, like being patient, being kind, these are things that we learn to do as part of the process of maturing, as part of the process of growing up we learn to be more patient. We learn that sometimes we have to be more flexible and that we don't always get our way in every instance. These are things that we learn to do as we grow up. And what Paul is making the case for is that as we grow up in spiritual life and in our Christian life, just like as children we learn to do some of these practical things, as people we will also get better at these things that make us a good human being, <laughs> right? It's really, really interesting. Okay. So Christianity has, has this amazing idea, and, and it's this. As, as teenagers, we, we develop our identity and we become who we are. And a key component of that, uh, psychology tells us, is that we find something larger than ourselves to latch onto, right? We find something that, that becomes uh, key components of our identity. And Christianity is a great place for that to land. It's like, the love of God to be virtuous and moral and honest and to work hard and be generous and compassionate and gentle and loving. And, and it's, it's these things that we can latch onto that are bigger than ourselves that can really give us a foundation and a firm footing to, to set on. But basically, the, the main idea is this. It's love. Christianity is the only ethical, it's the only worldview, it's the only system where love sits in that pinnacle place, in that primary place. Everything else celebrates something else. It's, oh, it's, it's science or rationality or romantic love or financial success or, you know, insert thing here that takes that primary place in our culture. It's, it's you know, it's, it's romantic expression or it's political preference or it's, you know, some kind of social uh, preference of this or that. But Christianity is saying, no, 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 those things are fine, but when love sits in the primary place, all of these other things can order Correctly. So in terms of our politics, in terms of our financial success in our careers, in terms of our relationships with other people, if we can love God and understand what that means and do that well in the way that 1 Corinthians is talking about it and grow up out of our childish ways, all of these other things can sit correctly in our lives and can be good, but they cannot be the ultimate things. Because things like financial success, that's not bad, it's a good thing but it makes a terrible God, right? (laughs) Because, you know, if if that's your God and you're worshiping at the altar of financial success and everything flows from that, you lose your job and it destroys you. Or or something bad happens as a financial setback and it destroys you. But if your your, your foundation is God, then, you know, money can come and go and you're okay. (laughs) You know, it's like it, it just changes the nature of even these important parts of life and makes it way more doable. Okay, so how do we grow up? How do we do it? How do we move from the top gun from the first movie to the second movie? <laughs> you know, how do we put God and God's love in the highest place? Well, again, Corinthians is, is a roadmap. And, and as we think about our lives, I want to flip it. I want to turn it around and read this one more time. But I want you to think about your own life in the, in the positive. So it's like, like, Lord, help me be patient and kind and these things. So I just want to read this again. And I just want you to consider it and think about it. And then right out of that, we're going to take communion, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. So one more time. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, It is not arrogant, rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just speak to us powerfully, even as your word is read over us, that we would see clearly how uh, we could be more patient, how we could be more kind, how we could press into these things that would make us more full as people. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us with specificity, with clarity, and that you would just move on our hearts with your presence today in Jesus' name. Amen.